We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Hallelujah. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you, Lou, Finn, and team. And thank you, Mike, for those kind words and uh, for this appointment. One thing Mike didn't mention is that I recently graduated seminary from seminary. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. See the ring? And, uh, but it wasn't without suffering. It was not without suffering. Man, I suffered through seminary. Uh, my, my first semester in seminary, I was taking five courses, and this is at the graduate level where three courses is full time. And uh, I would have been able to manage all that just fine, except that I was taking Greek one, and I suffered through Greek. And uh, to the point where I was considering dropping down to a different degree program from a four-year program to a two-year program where I didn't have to battle the languages. And one day I walked into chapel and uh, Pastor Joe, our campus chaplain, looked at me and he said, Logan, why the long face? And I said, man, I am suffering through Greek. It is killing me. I'm thinking about changing degree programs. And he just looked at me and he said, Logan, if I can do it, you can do it. I said, I, I don't... I, I don't, know what you, I don't know about that, Pastor Joe. And he goes, no, trust me. If I can do it, you can do it. He said, I dropped Greek four, Greek one, four times. And I almost dropped it a fifth time, but my wife told me if I drop it one more time, I'm gonna have to change my degree program. And so he gave me a little bit of confidence, and so I suffered through Greek one and got a C. And then I suffered through Greek two and got a B. And then I suffered through Greek three and got a B plus. And then I suffered through Greek four, finally got an A. And I suffered through Greek five and got an A plus. And I learned that you can suffer with confidence. I had a choice. I could either suffer with confidence or suffer and quit. And what we're gonna see today in 2 Timothy chapter one is that Part of the Christian walk is not about quitting, but when suffering does arise, to suffer with confidence. DTS has a slogan, it's on their crest, and it's Kerusan Tan Logan, which means preach the word. Do you know where that is? Preach the word is in 2 Timothy chapter four, where Paul is telling Timothy to preach the word because he knows he is about to step off the scene. And just a few verses after that, Paul gives these remarkable verses in chapter four, verse seven. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And that's really what 2 Timothy is all about, is completing the course faithfully. And so we're starting this series in 2 Timothy, and that's what I've entitled it, Completing the Course. So this is Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy. And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and, go ahead and open your, your Bible there. This is Paul's last letter. He is imprisoned in Rome. He knows he's going to die. So he writes this letter to his pro protege, Timothy, who will take the reins of the church at Ephesus. But this is not just a personal letter to Timothy. It's actually a letter to all of the church. It's to be read to the church as well. In the last chapter, in the last verse, in the very last clause, Paul tells Timothy, he says, uh, God's spirit be with you and grace to you. Now in the English, it's just, it's just you, but in the Greek, it's you all, indicating that not only is this letter to be to Timothy, 
Not only is this letter to be to the church of Ephesus, but for the universal church for all time, this letter is for us. This letter is about us completing the course well. And so Timothy is going to get the reins from Paul, and along with these reins comes suffering. Paul will say in chapter three, indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. So what do we do when suffering comes? How do we do it? Well, today we're going to learn to how to suffer with confidence when suffering comes. And what we're gonna see are three things, three E's. Suffering with confidence involves examples of suffering, encouragement in suffering, and that we are entrusted regardless of suffering. Examples, encouragement, entrusted. And those are gonna be kind of the handlebars that we're gonna steer, use to steer through this text. So first we're going to see examples that serve as models for suffering. So in verse one, Paul gives a typical greeting. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And then he's going to define what an apostle is. An apostle is, in verse one, by the will of God. And then he's gonna further qualify that according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. And so Paul will talk about throughout this letter the life that Christ brings. But this particular verse most likely has a telos flavor to it. It has this endpoint in mind. And in fact, that flavors the whole letter of 2 Timothy. Paul is keeping the sure endpoint of all of life, life eternal with Christ, in mind in the present. And so from the very outset of this letter, he's giving us a reason or setting an example for the right type of mindset we need to have in life for suffering. And it's keeping the end in mind in the present. And then in verse two, Paul says, to Timothy, this is who it's addressed to, my beloved son, grace and peace. No, grace, mercy, and peace. Only in First and Second Timothy does Paul insert mercy between grace and peace. Now what's interesting is that in First Timothy, Paul will tell Timothy, God's mercy be to you, and then a few verses down in that same chapter, he'll use himself as an example of what God's mercy is. He'll say that even though he was a blasphemer of Christ, and though he was a persecutor and a violent aggressor toward Christians, yet God showed him mercy. And then later on in chapter one of 2 Timothy, he will say, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. So Paul in 1 Timothy uses himself as an example just as he tells Timothy uh, uh, uses himself as an example of what God's mercy looks like just after he so gives him a salutation that God's mercy be to you. But what's interesting is that in 2 Timothy, he uses someone else as an example. This letter begins with God's mercy, chapter one begins with God's mercy, and chapter one ends with God's mercy. Look at verse 16. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, and if I say Onesimus, just, I'm gonna apologize ahead of time. You know, if you're into Greek mythology, I just sometimes will get those mixed up. 
letting you know right now that I might do that. But Paul says in verse 16, the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. And so God's mercy to the whole household of Onesiphorus. And that is for a reason. And then in verse 18, Paul will say, the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. So Paul is an example of mercy. And then he points to Onesiphorus as as, as another recipient of mercy. Now notice how Paul, or why Paul, considers him a worthy example of mercy, as well as all the personal pronouns surrounded by those reasons. Just listen to this, verse 16. For he, Onesiphorus, often refreshed me, Paul. It was a, not a one-time thing, it was a regular thing. He often refreshed Paul, and was not ashamed of my chains. Where is Paul? He's in prison. That's what Paul is referring to. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The end of verse verse 18. And you know very well what services he rendered. And there's an implied to me at Ephesus. And so when Paul tells tells about Onesiphorus in verse 18, 16, how he was not ashamed of my chains. And then in verse 12, Paul will also say, I am not ashamed. And then he'll tell Timothy in verse 8, do not be ashamed, but join with me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Do not be ashamed, Timothy, of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. And so, Paul will give himself as an example of one who is not ashamed and an example of God's mercy in his life. Paul will use Onesiphorus as an example of God's mercy in his life and one who is not ashamed. And so he is telling Timothy, hey, God's mercy's to you, look at us. We are two people who are not ashamed, therefore you do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or me, his prisoner. And so Paul and Onesiphorus are examples of those who not only suffer for Christ, but in Onesiphorus' case, one who is willing to suffer for Christ. Tom will tell a story about a guy named Howie Tomlins, a jazz player from New York. And one day, back, this was, I think, back in the 90s, uh, Howie was jogging down the road and was hit by a car and ended up shattering his leg and, and getting a severe concussion. Well, soon after, when he was on the mend, they were at a picnic, and Howie had a seizure. And everybody thought it was because of the concussion that he got. But he went in and got an MRI, and and he found out that he had a a very large tumor in his brain, and that they couldn't remove this tumor. And so what they would do is they would go in and just cut a little bit out at a time. And, And Howie would memorize a chapter of scripture before he went went into uh, surgery, and then when he came out of surgery, he'd recite that, just to see where he was at. Well, when Howie moved back to New York, he and Tom would correspond by letter. And eventually, uh, Howie could have no more surgeries, and the tumor just grew and grew and grew. And, and Tom said that he could tell in his handwriting the progression of it getting worse and worse and worse, until eventually Howie couldn't write any letters to uh, eventually it came to the point where Howie was checked into hospice. But Tom said that, 
throughout that entire time he was in hospice, throughout the entire time of his surgeries, he continued to share his faith. He continued to uh, trust in God and he continued to read his Bible. Howie is an example of one who suffers for Christ well. He's an example for all of us of a person who continues to trust in God despite the suffering around him, regardless of the circumstances, Howie was a man that continued to suffer and trust simultaneously. He is a man who we can look to as one who suffered with confidence. But not only do we get godly examples of suffering, but we get encouragement in suffering. In verse three, Paul gives a nod to his spiritual heritage. He says, I thank God who, whom I serve with a clear conscience or a pure conscience the way my forefathers did. So Paul is saying that he has inherited a godly legacy and that he has faithfully served the God of the patriarchs and the God of the prophets his entire life, and that he's inherited this uh, legacy of faith, that he's entrenched in this legacy of faith, and he's been faithful to serve it. And that Timothy also has inherited a legacy of faith. Verse five, Paul says, for I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, or the unhypocritical faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother, legacy of faith, number one, and your mother Eunice, legacy of faith number two. And I am sure that it is in you as well. So Paul says you have sincere faith, just like your grandmother and your mother. And so he is encouraging Timothy to reflect on the legacy of faith that he has inherited. Notice the words of remembrance. There's this recurrence of words of remembrance. In verse three, Paul says, I constantly remember. Verse four, he says, I recall. Verse five, he says, I am mindful. Same root word for remember. And then in verse six, he says, I remind you. So he's telling Timothy, reflect a faithfulness to your ministry consistent with the legacy of faith you have inherited. Why? Because Paul is confident that he is about to step off the scene. Paul is confident that he is about to die. And what does he call Timothy in verse two? His beloved son. And so he is encouraging Timothy to continue the legacy of faith that's been handed down from Paul to him. And there's further good news. Suffering is not to be endured in one's own strength. Paul says in verse six, for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul recognizes something in Timothy. He recognizes that he has a God-gifted uh, giftedness to ministry. And so he formally and publicly acknowledges Timothy through the laying on of hands that this is the next in line to inherit the church of Ephesus and to pastor it. And so, in a sense, Paul is, Paul's suffering unashamedly for Christ is now being handed off to his protege, Timothy. 
Now, in verse seven, we read, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, or the word is cowardice. It's used, it's the only time in the New Testament it's used, but everywhere and outside of, outside of this literature, this word is always used as cowardice. This is not what God has given us, but he's given us power, love, and discipline. Now, your Bible might have a lowercase s there for spirit, or it might have an uppercase for spirit. But this almost certainly is referring to the Holy Spirit. When Paul uses the not but construction like he does in verse seven, and whenever it's followed by panuma or the Spirit, it's almost always referring to the Holy Spirit. And, it's, and it always is referring to the Holy Spirit in passages where the Holy Spirit is talked about most. Romans chapter eight, verse 15. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, it's referring to the Holy Spirit. And secondly, this passage that, this little subsection within chapter one that begins with the Holy Spirit actually ends with the Holy Spirit in verse 14. Paul says, guard through the Holy Spirit. So Paul is referring to the Holy Spirit in verse seven. Now, he's gonna tell, first of all, what God hasn't given us. And then he'll follow it with what God has given us. Now, Paul is confident that Timothy, has, Timothy can be unashamed. Because in verse five, he mentioned that Paul has, or Timothy has faith two times. So Paul is confident that Timothy can be unashamed. And then he's gonna tell us what God hasn't given us, and he's gonna give it in three negative not statements. Verse seven, he has not given us a spirit of cowardice. Verse eight, not be ashamed. Verse nine, you were not saved according to your, or who saved us and called us not according to our works. And so we as believers in Christ Jesus have no reason to be cowards. There is nothing to be ashamed of regarding our Lord. And we were never called and saved by our works in the first place. And if you work that in reverse order, if you think you are saved by your works, then you do have something to be ashamed about which will only lead to fear of judgment. And then well, Paul will go into what he has given us and what he has done. These three negative statements are gonna be contrasted by three positive statements, and notice the personal pronouns that surround them. Verse 7b, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of us, given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and sound, and a sound mind, or sound discipline. Verse 8b, join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Verse 9, he has saved us and called us not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus. So what we're seeing here is that divine might, God's power, God's love, Supernatural discipline that is derived from the Holy Spirit is toward us. It is toward us who believe. It is for us. And the outworking of this power and this purpose in our lives is found in the content of the gospel. Verse nine, who Christ has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ, 
speaking of the incarnation, who abolished death, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so God's power in our lives that is directed to us is through Christ. He is our savior. He is our death abolisher. He is our life giver, our immortality granter. And when the one who has called you according to his purpose from all eternity and has saved you not according to your works, who has broken the power of death, who has brought life and immortality to bear in your life and gives you his power and gives you his love and gives you his discipline, when the one who has called you has done that on your behalf, being ashamed of suffering for Christ, takes a back seat. You then can suffer with confidence. The word confidence comes from the Latin to confide. It's a compound word, confide, with faith. That's what confidence means, that we can suffer confidently. We can suffer with faith. I had a professor named Dr. Waters at DTS, and uh, what's really cool about uh, your professors at DTS is a lot of them, before they get their PhDs and come back to teach, they were in the mission field for 10, 20, sometimes 30 years. And so they bring all that experience into the classroom along with great theology and scholarship. And Dr. Waters was one of these guys. Now, Dr. Waters actually went to be with the Lord while I was there, and I could, saw that, I could see that he, he lived this out to the end. Dr. Waters was a, uh, a missionary to the Philippines, and he told us a story in class one time that, um, you know, just kind of describing the Philippines, how there are a lot of nominal Catholics in the Philippines and, and a lot of Muslims in, in the Philippines. And he said there was a season where God was just bringing wives and mothers to his church and they were getting converted. But then they would go back home and when their husbands found out that they had become Christians, the husbands would abuse them. They would come home and find all of their stuff outside and they were actually sleeping outdoors. Well, one day one of the, the women got the bright idea and said, hey, Dr. Waters, why don't you come to my house and talk to my husband? He was a Muslim, and Dr. Waters agreed to do that, and come to find out that as Dr. Waters is going to this house, he finds out that the husband of this woman is planning to kill him when he gets there, and he's got a whole elaborate plan that Dr. Waters will sit in this chair, he will sit in this chair over here, and around the corner, he's going to have a machete where he can whack Dr. Waters. So Dr. Waters knows this going into it, but now he knows that he's got to go through with what he committed to do, because if it's not him, it could be the wife. So Dr. Waters goes into the house, and the man asks, asks him to sit in the spot that he knew is, it was the part of the plan, and then the man takes his spot, which is part of the plan, and Dr. Waters just begins to share the gospel with this man, and just talks and talks and talks and talks, just kind of prolonging his death and by the end of it, the man is converted and trusts in the Lord. Dr. Waters is an example, an encouraging example of one who is willing to suffer unashamedly for Christ. He is one who can suffer with confidence. And I hope that encourages you that you too can suffer with confidence, confide with faith. God empowers his people to be willing to suffer with confidence. So we've seen examples 
of suffering. We've seen encouragement in suffering. And now we're going to see that we are entrusted regardless of suffering. Paul says in verse 11, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. So uh, Paul's appointment is referring to his calling. And then he kind of gives his portfolio here. He says, I'm a preacher, or a better understanding of the word is heralder. He says, I'm an apostle, and then I am a teacher. Now, I won't go really into what those mean, but um, he uses teacher like we actually use preacher, where the... um, the pastor of the church edifies the people of God by uh, expositing the word of God so that they may conform their lives to look like the son of God, all right? And so this is what's on Paul's mind when he says teaching, or uh, teaching, he's talking about sound word, sound doctrine, sound teaching. Oftentimes the word, word, teaching, and doctrine are the same word in Greek. And so, Paul says that, uh, that he was appointed to these things, and then in verse 12, he says, I, uh, I, for this reason I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am conf- and convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Now, I'm gonna drop a little Greek on you, okay? I just graduated from seminary. I'm really excited to do this, so just stick with me. I'm not trying to get too fancy here. All right, so Paul, when he, there's two verbs in there, believed and convinced. Now, these are perfect tense verbs. What that means is it can be translated two different ways. These translators, and you'll never find a Bible that brings in both translations at the same time. And so this is why I've been trained in Greek to do that. So what that, when we read that he has believed, or I have believed, the translators have chosen the latter part of the perfect tense verb. See, this verb can be translated two ways. I have believed and I believe. A perfect tense verb carries the idea of something that happened in the past but continues into the present. That's what a perfect tense verb does. So you can translate it, I have believed, and you can translate it, I believe. And it's the same for the word convinced. I have been convinced and I am convinced. And so the point is that for Paul, his belief in who God is and what God is doing, his plan and purpose for his life, is a settled issue. There is no more debating. It is a settled issue for Paul. He has believed and he is convinced, then and now. The word entrusted is the word, it means deposit. It is the word paratheke. And it comes from the word paratithemi. Now just hold on, to, just, you just listen to the sound. It's paratithemi, just remember that sound. And so the question is, what has Paul entrusted or deposited to God? Because he says at the end of verse 12, I'm convinced that he, God, is able or has the power to guard what I have entrusted to him. So what has Paul entrusted or deposited to God? Well, if you look back up to verse 11, when Paul says, I, ha- I was appointed, that word appoint is the word tithemi. And it's referring to his ministry. And so what Paul is entrusting to God is his ministry. 
And what Paul is saying is, what God has entrusted to me, I'm entrusting back to God who has the power or the ability to keep it until that day. So Paul is entrusted with the ministry and he's trusting in God's divine enablement, enablement to carry it out to the very end. So, Timothy, verse 13, retain, that's, a, that's an imperative, you retain the standard of sound words or sound teaching, because that's the context here, which you have heard from me. In other words, maintain and model my apostolic teaching, carry on the ministry that I am leaving to you, model, pattern, my sound apostolic doctrine because I'm about to step off the scene. Verse 14, he says, guard to Timothy. Where did we just see that word? Verse 12, Paul said, he's, God is guarding something. What is Timothy to guard? Can you take a guess in verse 14 what the word treasure is? Deposit. Paul tells Timothy, just like he's referring to himself, to guard, verse 14, through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the deposit which has been entrusted to you. And so he, like Timothy, has been entrusted with a ministry that he, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is to see accomplished on his behalf. So he is receiving what God, he's been entrusted with a particular ministry, and through the Holy Spirit, is trusting God to bring it to pass. And what that means is that there is divine and human responsibility working in tandem here. That, and here's, here's really the, the beautiful point here is that God will achieve success in and through the cooperation of his entrusted people, you. So Timothy is to protect the ministry of teaching the word that has been entrusted to him just as Paul is protecting the ministry of the word that's been entrusted to him, all by the power of God. And furthermore, Paul has the expectation that faithfulness to Christ, faithfulness to what has been entrusted to him, will one day be rewarded in the future. In the very last chapter, Paul says, in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He just mentioned appearing of the Lord. And notice Paul says in, verse, in chapter four, verse eight, it's on that day, that future day. So when Paul says the words, that day in 2 Timothy, like he does in verse 12 and like he does in verse 18, there is a link that faithfulness to what has been entrusted to us will one day be rewarded. Now we don't like to talk about God rewarding us for our faithfulness, but it is throughout scripture. And it's usually in reaction to the prosperity gospel, I know. But God is going to reward your faithfulness to Christ. And Paul has that expectation. He ends his life saying, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. The reward could be righteousness or the reward could be, it could be translated righteous crown. Either way, there is a reward waiting on Paul for his faithfulness to ministry. 
When I was in Young Guns, one of the things that stood out to me most was something Tom would always say. He would always say, you just be faithful as far as the headlights shine. You just be faithful. Whatever, whatever is being shined on in front of you in your life, that's, that's all you have to be faithful to. When I, I, when I was a kid and I got my driver's license, uh, we lived out in the country, way out in the country, and we took back roads home. And uh, my dad found out that I was driving too fast at night when I told him that my headlights weren't bright enough. And the reason why is he told me, he said, son, you're out driving your headlights. You see, when you live out in the country and you drive back roads everywhere, you learn those roads like the back of your hand. And you, you know if something comes from this way, here's how I'm gonna avoid it. If it comes from this way, here's what I'm gonna do. And so you drive really fast. And one day I told my dad, Dad, I need brighter headlights. He says, no, you're driving too fast. See, I was overdriving my headlights. I was going outside of what God has illumined to me. And so what is in your life that God is highlighting? What, where are your headlights shining? What have you been entrusted to? Are you being faithful to Christ in your job? That's what you've been entrusted to. Are you being faithful in, to Christ with your family, that's what God has entrusted you with. Are you being faithful to God in your private life? That's what God has entrusted you with. Are you being faithful in your spheres of influence? Because that's what God has entrusted you with. Soon after I started seminary, and at this point in uh, my ministry, I, I, I was just starting out, and I started out a number of different things. I was serving at a different church, uh, I had started a college ministry, I had started teaching, and there just never seemed to be fruit in any of the things that I was doing. I mean, it just, it was just, just seemed like mediocre things after mediocre things and me, after mediocre things, and I was getting a little discouraged, and my first chapel as a seminary student was preached by uh, Chuck Swindoll, and I sat on the front row, and I was just laser-focused, and he saw that I was laser-focused, and so he would just look at me and just preach to me, so I thought. And he said, do you know what success in ministry is? Success in ministry is not the fruit you see, not the people in your seats, not the people you lo who like you. And Success in ministry is simply faithfulness. That is success in ministry. Are you being faithful to what God has entrusted to you? Where are your headlights shining? God has entrusted you and every single believer with a particular ministry, and guess what? There is an expectation to be faithful, and along with that faithfulness, there will be reward in heaven. And so, to put it all together, we see that Paul is about to step off the scene. He knows that he is about to go. This is his last letter to his protege. And so he sets up some examples for Timothy to follow. He gives you himself. He gives Onesiphorus as examples. And he says, Timothy, the good news is that God is gonna give you divine empowerment for you to suffer with confidence. He's gonna look at this legacy of faith you have around you. Receive that legacy of faith. And like me, who has served faithfully with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, you too serve faithfully with the legacy of faith you have inherited. 
And then he tells him, regardless of suffering, you have been appointed and entrusted by God to maintain sound words and sound teaching. And there is an expectation of reward for that. So take courage, Timothy, because you can suffer with confidence. So when we do suffer, because we will, we too can suffer with confidence. So, church, let's prepare to suffer with confidence. How do we prepare to suffer with confidence? Well, first way we prepare to suffer with confidence is by observing the examples around you. There are people all around you who are fine, godly examples of those who had suffered for Christ, who are examples of those who have suffered with confidence. Just look around you, they're here. That's the first way that you can prepare to suffer with confidence are the godly examples around you. The second way we can prepare to suffer with confidence is to accept godly encouragement. You are surrounded by a legacy of faith, either by your grandparents, by your parents, or by virtue of being at Denton Bible Church. You know, sometimes I need a little encouragement, and so what I will do is I'll read the history of this church. And I am amazed and convinced that the city of Denton would not be the same if it were not for Denton Bible. When you realize how long this church has been around and what has come out of this church, from coffee shops that disciple people with addiction to just giving land away for a dollar, to starting schools, preaching schools across the world, serve Denton, prayer ministries that have been around for decades that continue to this day, all because Denton Bible. It's pretty amazing that just by virtue of being here, we are surrounded by a great legacy of faith. May that be an encouragement to you. Another encouragement, a way to help us to prepare to suffer with confidence is that God will provide divine enablement to do that. He will give you the strength, the ability to do that, just like he did Howie, just like he did Dr. Waters, and just like he's done for many of you in here. God will give you empowerment to suffer with confidence. And finally, we can prepare to suffer with confidence by being faithful to what God has entrusted you with and knowing that it will one day be rewarded. Paul begins this letter with the end in sight. Life with Christ. Know that your faithfulness to what you've been entrusted to is not in vain that it will one day be rewarded. So church, evening service, prepare to suffer with confidence by observing the examples around you, accepting godly encouragement, and being faithful to what you have been entrusted to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this letter is not only for Timothy. We thank you that this letter is not only for the church at Ephesus, but we thank you that this letter is for the universal church. 
and that you have provided everything we need to suffer with confidence. And you've told us that all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer. And so when suffering comes, I pray that in the power of the Holy Spirit, you would recall to our minds the many examples we have. That you would encourage us by the legacy of faith we're surrounded with. And we know that you will give us the power to suffer well. And I pray, Lord, whatever we've been entrusted with, that we would be faithful to that. And so we thank you, Lord, and it is for and to your glory we pray. Amen.